HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by greatbrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, we're recording today, November 11, 2013. You might be hearing this in 2014, but we've got some special guests in town for the Union Beer Portfolio Tasting, so we had to do a special recording. Dave Broderick from Blind Tigers here. How are you, buddy? Hey, Jimmy. How you doing? All right. We brought some of your friends. we got Bobby from The Gate. How are you, Bobby? How you doing? And we've got from the Pacific Northwest here for the Union Beer Tasting, we've got Irene and Jamie from Full Sail. Hello, how's it going? And hey, Dick Cantwell from Elysian. Hi, delighted to be here. And a new buddy, uh, Ray Darmstadt from uh, St. Gambrinus Beer Shop. Hey, Jimmy. All right, you? and Tim Stendhal from Union Beer. Okay. Beer. So this is pretty cool. So we're here, we're meeting on a Monday, or it's actually about 11 o'clock. Um, and so we're not sure when you're going to hear this, but sometime soon. And uh, Union Beer did this really great, uh, it's, it's every three or four years, Tim? Uh, yeah, it's, it's about every three years. Um, we, uh, it, it takes a lot of coordination, a lot of effort in order to, to get all the brewers out here, owners, um, and to just uh, corral as many people as it takes to do this event. So it's only once about every three years, but it's, it's a pretty spectacular event. And how many uh, brewers are in town for this? Um, probably between 70 and 80 percent of our portfolio is represented by the owner, the uh, brewmaster, or um, you know, someone who has a, a very significant hand in, um, in the brewery. Um, so it's it's a pretty significant uh, portion of our entire portfolio, and it's open up to the first for the first time. It's open up to the public on uh, on Wednesday. Yeah, um, in the past we've only done two of these events in the past. Um, one in two thousand seven, one in two thousand nine, and uh, and again this year, uh, two thousand thirteen. Um, uh, I'm sorry, blanket. What? No, I'm just wondering. And, and so this year it is open to the public. Yeah. So the in, in the day. past it's, it's been industry only, by invite only. Uh, but this year uh, we had so many people request to be part of the part of the event that we decided that it really needed to be open up to the public as well. Um, so this will be the first time, and hopefully uh, going forward we'll be able to have a second day for the public as well. Is it two sessions for the for the public on Wednesday? No, it's uh, two sessions for the industry on uh, on Tuesday, November twelfth, and then one session for the public. On the evening of Wednesday, November thirteenth. All right. Well, you know, uh, since you know, in recognition of that, we, we've got um, Dave here from Blind Tiger and a Bobby Ganyan from the Gate. Um, we'll first start talking to you guys because it's, it's your first time on, Bobby. That's it. And you guys have been industry leaders for a long time. You know, you've seen the change in, in craft beer industry. Um, you know, what are some of the brewers or the breweries that you you look forward to tasting this week? Well, for me, it's. For me, it's the full portfolio. I think that's the most exciting part of it. Is that you know to, to be able to come in and you know uh, sort of taste across the portfolio rather than what comes through the door as we order piecemeal yeah. uh, and meet everyone. Yeah, and I think they they tend to bring some special stuff that you might not see um, in kegs, you know, or be able to sell yourself. You know, they they're there obviously to 
you know, really show people what they're capable of. So you, I remember from the last two that uh, there were some really nice bottles being poured. So let's just talk to Bobby. I'm, I know you've, you've, you guys have been friends a long time, Dave. Um, we bartended let's, together. Let's ask him about how you guys <laughs> started. Because right. you're, you're, you, you and along with Blind Tiger, one of the legendary New York uh, beer bars. Oh, legendary. Yeah. <laughs> I throw my spur. Hang around long around. enough, you become legendary. <laughs> um, I started... As a bartender, essentially, and worked in a uh, in a beer bar in Hollywood called uh, Barney's Beanery, widely known, well known. <clears throat> Two hundred plus bottles of beer and about a dozen drafts, and uh, that was being a kid from Boston, Massachusetts. That was a huge education. You know, I came up drinking Heineken, Budweiser, and ended up at Barney's Beanery with a couple of hundred beers and pretty much tasted them all. And then I moved to New York and met Dave, and Dave was uh, beginning to make inroads into the, what became the Blind Tiger, and uh, we spent a lot of time tasting, talking uh, about, uh, you know, this, the New York, uh, what became the New York craft beer movement, which was pretty slow in, in the beginning to, to start up. Yeah, and I remember back then we were like, wow, can, you know, DBA had just opened up, I think um, they opened up in 04, and we were like, do you think, you know, New York can support, like, another beer bar, you know, is it is it big enough to have two, and... Uh, because you just didn't know. I mean, it just wasn't a big, wasn't a big, be- a big deal back then. And, and um, Ray and, and Dennis had sort of been talked into to selling craft beer and really dedicating the place to it. Um, I don't think when they first were looking at that location that, that that's the way they were going to go. They weren't sure what they were going to do. And uh, but they were convinced and they did it. And, and then we were like, okay, let's try it. Yeah, how, uh, how, s- how soon after DBA were uh, was was the Tiger? Uh, we were February, close. March 06, and they were a year and a half before. And then Ginger Man opened up like two weeks after us. Right, so it was right. all kind of right around the same time. And then so then we came in a year after in May yeah, 90, you're, 97. Right. Uh, yeah, and that was, you know, that was there were a handful of us, you know. And there was, uh, uh, it was work. You know, we were, out, we were out there basically trying to put the beer in people's hands well, and educate and, them and now they're educating us and we're in park slope where you were there was nothing, nothing. especially on fifth fifth there was nothing yeah so. well, that was as i was just saying to uh to jimmy it was it was definitely hinterlands at that you know it was yeah. pizza places and bodegas and and us you know mm-hmm. we turned on a couple of lights and people started coming in and saying 24 draft beers let me try that let me try that let me try that and so back then went. bobby what were some of the the brands that you were serving uh, at the gate in 1997. Primarily, Dave, you could help me out with this. Primarily, we were we were dealing with uh, a lot of German, Belgian, English, and a few American crafts. Brooklyn, Brooklyn was big. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I know we had like five Brooklyn lines. I think you yeah. probably and had like Sierra Nevada, four or five. Sierra Nevada, was Anchor big. Steam. Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, if you looked at our opening list, it, it, you'd be like, uh, Pete's Wicked was big back then. That's right. Um, there were Pyramid, a lot of brands. Pyramid was another one. That Pyramid, was from the West. Wild Goose. Yeah. Um, a lot of brands that had kind of gone by the wayside, so it was a very different list from what it is now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now you know it, it's so much more American craft, you know, now than it was then. We were, we were definitely, I would say, sixty to sixty-five percent, possibly seventy, uh, import. Yeah, you know. And Dick Cantwell, you're here from Elysian in Seattle, so yep. you, you you were around back then. I certainly was. So were Jamie and Irene, of course. Uh, we didn't send beer to this market back then, but we do now. And the, the, the years that these guys are talking about, 96, that's right when we were opened our first location on Capitol Hill in Seattle. Mm. And then what, what did you think about New York? Or did you think about New York at all back then? What did I think about beer? New York at all? Yeah. I loved it. I always miss it. I lived here for a couple of years back in the 80s. So, you know, I've, and my brothers have both lived here over the years, too. So I've come back periodically and watch it change. And, you know, it really seems like there's a quickening in the last couple of years, even with the progress that mm-hmm. these guys are talking about with brand recognition and an expansion of uh, American craft beer. Uh, there are more beer. I mean, you're talking about wondering if New York can sustain a second craft beer bar. And, you know, of course, they're all over the place. Mm-hmm. And the places that even a few years ago were saying, oh, we'd love to get in more of that, but we don't have the space. Well, it seems like people have the space now. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, let's, so talk about Elysian. So you guys started in the 90s. We started in 96 in Seattle, where we have been primarily a pub company for most of our history. We now operate three pubs in Seattle. Uh, we have a big one near the, near the stadiums called Elysian Fields, our original one. It's about a 200-seat joint. And then we have a small neighborhood place uh, 
about five miles north of us. And as of a couple of years ago, we operate a production brewery in a cool, sort of artisty, welding kind of part of town called Georgetown. That's where our production brewery is now. And that makes it possible for us to make enough beer to, you know, have a presence outside of our own home market. So it's been, it's been going well. And I thought we were done with pubs, but we're going to open another one within a few months. So where do you spend most of your time now, Dick? That's a good question. I once wrote an article about operating multiple locations, and I started by transcribing that part in Goodfellas, The Day He Gets Busted, where you know he has to make the tomato sauce and drop off the guns to the guys from Florida and all that stuff. And so I wrote that part, and then I wrote what, what my day was like, you know, checking in with my guys at the different brewing locations and calling up for raw materials and all that stuff. I, I spend a lot of time driving, but I try not to spend all my time driving. I like to, uh, I do like to check in with everybody because uh, I think it's really important for the continuity and also for, at this point, uh, I feel like sort of the mentoring that I do for some of my younger brewers is really, really important. Uh, but I do tend to sit at a table right next to the brewery at our original location with my iPad open and do most of my work there. So do you like um, manage, manage managers, manage brewers, and, and just spend a lot of time in, you know, meeting with them, just sort of setting the tone? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think it's, as I said, I think that's really important, especially now that we're operating the production brewery, because I think some of those guys, it's a much less social kind of situation than it was when we were just pubs, you know, because they had more interaction with the public and with each, with each other, you know, because a production brewery, spaces spread out, communication is really, really important. You know, if something's going on, not 10 feet from you as it is in a pub setting, but, you know, all the way across the room and people don't always know what's going on and it's important to sort of knit that together. Uh, I think uh, another important thing I do is involve my guys in recipe formulation. I used to do all that myself. Um, and, you know, in the last few years, I think it's been really important to to have a little sort of committee. We have periodic meetings with all the brewers to talk about what we all want to do in the next couple of months. And since we have those pubs, we have that kind of flexibility. We're able to have, you know, 20 different beers on from our, just from our breweries, shipping between those different locations. And there's a lot of opportunity for people to have individual input, come up with their own recipes. And that's resulted in some of our most successful seasonals. So, uh, do you guys also serve other beers at your pubs? Well, we we do. You know, we uh, we we have. Uh, you know, we these days with so many pubs, we don't really need to. You know, we do bring things in periodically. You know, if something really terrific is in the market, which of course it always is, but but generally it's our beers. We do keep a tap open in each of our places for a New Belgium tap because we've done a lot of work over the last four or five years with New Belgium, sort of a, a nice symbiosis that we have with them. Uh, but it's not a philosophical objection to having them. It's just that we have so many of our own beers that we uh, don't often pour outside ga- or outside beers. Dick, how did you get into beer? Because you seem like a philosophical guy. <laughs> and, you know, you just wrote a book. Or you re- rewrote the book. It's uh, the Brewers Association... Uh, Guide to starting your own brewery. Right. Uh, well, uh, I got into beer just be- well, I don't know. I mean, I've always been into beer. Uh, one thing that's kind of funny is that my introduction to Belgian beer came because my ex-wife was an art- is, is still an art historian. And so we were, and her specialty was 15th and 16th century Dutch and Flemish painting, which is what she was doing while we were here in New York. She worked at the Met. And uh, on our trips to Belgium, you know, we'd look at art and we'd drink beer because, of course, you're going to do that. Uh, but I really got into brewing more seriously when my daughter was born because uh, I'd been writing uh, during the days and, you know, all of a sudden I didn't have those long stretches of time because I was taking care of her during that time. I took care of her at home for about a year and a half working nights and I'd started home brewing and that was something that was creative I could do while she was around. Uh, and I've continued writing, uh, but these days it's mostly about beer. And yes, I'm very pleased that the book is finally out. Uh, it's been out since about May, and it's a pretty thorough redo of the previous edition. The previous edition was a pastiche of essays by a lot of different people. Each person took a different chapter, but I thought it was important to have a single voice for all of it. And the previous edition was done several years ago, and of course the world has changed since then completely. Uh, and So there's a lot of advice uh, None of it comprehensive. I can't claim to be an expert about any particular subject, but I think the experience that I've gained in the last 20 or so years in the industry 
uh, has made it possible for me to weigh in, not just on stuff like recipes and all that. There's not much advice about that kind of thing in there, but there is about portfolio and marketing, how to work with a distributor, uh, things you need to think about as you're getting started and thinking about getting started. I just want people to go into it with their eyes open, if at all possible. Yeah, with so many uh, new breweries and, and, and breweries that have been around for a while, you know, what's your, what's your main advice to uh, would-be startups? I mean, what do they, you know, I always think that they really need to have some kind of a vision um, for how they're going to be different. But, I mean, what are some of the things that you say to them or say in that book to them? Absolutely. Uh, I think differentiation, you know, having that vision, having a vision and not just sort of going into it and saying, well, I make great beer, so my business is going to be a success. You have to have an identity. Uh, it doesn't have to be a slavish identity, uh, but you do have to have some sort of idea about what the thrust of your, of, your, of your approach is going to be, whether it's label design and the types of beers you choose to brew, uh, what your place looks like. I mean, every decision you make is a branding decision. And I think an awful lot of people, you know, back, say, in the earlier boom times of craft brewing's beginnings, uh, people thought that, uh, you know, just a great beer or two was going to be enough to sell itself. And these days, with a new brewery literally, well, two new breweries literally opening every day in this country, you absolutely have to sort of mark out some territory so that people will remember you. Even, you know, even if your beer is great, you know, you can, people can say, oh, I had a great beer the other day. What was it called? Oh, I don't remember. But you have to make sure that people do remember because there is limited sort of attention span for, for consumers, distributors, retailers, everybody. And uh, you have to, have to do that recognizing that it's a very crowded market. Uh, I gave a talk at the National Homebrewers Conference back in uh, oh, whatever month that was, June, and I took every chapter of the book and talked about specifically the angle of a crowded market and how people should uh, really sort of keep that stuff in mind. My favorite was the, the chapter about floors when my main advice, my uh, sort of uh, axiom for that one was uh, squeegee less than your competitors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I think that's all you have to say. Yeah. <laughs> Sums it up. Yeah. Well, hey, um, first a quick shout-out. If you have any questions for us ever, the best thing to do is uh, send it to us on Twitter, at beer underscore sessions, and uh, we'd love to get your questions on the air. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. We've got a lot more on the show on uh, Beer Sessions Radio. All right. You are listening to I Like Ye by Roberta's own Hard Bodies on the Heritage Radio Network.org. So, you like good beer? Whether you're a craft beer pro or just had your first sip of an IPA, GreatBrewers.com is your number one beer resource on the internet. GreatBrewers.com bridges the gap between the world's great brewers and the consumers who enjoy their products. With so much information and misinformation out there, GreatBrewers.com focuses on education and leaves no stone unturned. Take the Great Beer Test on their website and browse through an extensive product catalog. Download their mobile beer cloud app which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit greatbrewers.com today. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, thanks again to GreatBrewers.com, and they're also bringing to you uh, this great trade tasting this week. So we've got uh, Dick Cantwell from Elysian and Irene Fermat and Jamie Emerson from Full Sail here in the house. Um, so uh, we've got another guest, Ray Darmstadt, who's uh, just opened up St. Gambrinus Beer Shop. Earlier we were talking about how in 1997-96 when Blind Tiger and the Gate opened, there weren't too many other beer bars around, but now there's a lot. And you've opened a specialty beer shop. Yes. We're um, on Atlantic Avenue, just really close to the Barclays Arena. We've been open up since uh, the week before Labor Day. And uh, things are going pretty good so far. Uh, We have uh, 16 beers on tap. And um, 
shelves in the back where we have bottles. Uh, we're eventually going to add refrigeration, and um, we have food. Uh, everything's going really good so far for right. the first 10 weeks anyway. What was the first beer that you brought for us? I bought Sierra Celebration. And why did you pick that? Well, the, the, the four main partners all met at the Blind Tiger, and uh, basically Sierra Celebration was one of the first beers that really opened up my eyes to uh, you know good beer, hoppy beer. And basically, we became friends with a lot more than just, uh, you know, a lot of people at the Tiger. And um, Celebration was probably the one of the main beers that we all sort of bonded over. Uh, all different types of people, all different walks of life, but we all just loved the beer. Yeah, Ray, Ray was kind of the mayor of the Blind Tiger. We're a little leaderless. <laughs> We're leaderless right now. We've got to elect a new one. So all these good customers are starting to open their own businesses. <laughs> it stinks. <laughs> You yeah, must, you must make it look too easy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, talk about people that, that are pros that have made it. Um, you guys full sale uh, up in uh, Hood River, Hood River, Oregon. Uh, Irene Fermat and Jamie Emerson. Uh, welcome to the show, guys. Hey, great to be here. You know, we, we, it's, it's it's great having you guys. I know the Union Beer Portfolio is going on, so uh, we get people from all over the world coming to town. I know my my friend uh, Mr. Cayuchi from uh, Hitachino Brewery is here. We're going to see him this week. So uh, what do you guys think about being in New York? Well, I grew up in New York, so I, I'm thrilled to be here any time that we're here. So it's I'm, I'm from a little town in the Midwest, so I love the big city. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I was looking at a video of you guys today in this Hood River, you know, Oregon. It's like, I'm going to move there. It's just like <laughs> flowing water, and you're, and you're talking about sustainability and how you guys have – You've figured out what the, you're the most what water efficient brewery now in the world, or something. Oh, I don't think I don't think we're the most water efficient, <laughs> but we're pretty good. Uh, we switched to a mash filter about three years ago, which is a Belgian piece of equipment. And uh, you know, typical German brewery runs a louder tub, and a louder will drop eighty percent moisture, so say two thousand pounds of husk and eight thousand pounds of water, and a mash filter drops about sixty five percent moisture, which doesn't seem like a lot. But for us, it was about 800 gallons of water per brew. So water weighs 8 pounds a gallon, so quite a bit of weight then. You're not shipping out in spent grain. And what you end up with is we, we saved about a million gallons of water over that course Again. of the year. Yeah. So we were, before with a ladder tub, we were about 3.5 gallons to uh, a water use for every gallon of beer. And now we're about 2.5 gallons of water to every gallon of beer. And, of course, uh, the Germans don't believe it works because it's Belgian. <laughs> and those numbers might not sound like much, but that is a remarkable ratio. What's what's a typical brewery using for water for every gallon? Of beer? Six to ten. ten. Wow. And what do you guys do at Elysian? I, you know, I, I wish I could say we were anywhere close to what these guys do, but uh, probably six, honestly. Yeah. I think it's harder in the pub environment, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Because uh, you have a lot of usage then in, in the in the restaurant part of the pub itself. You know, that is counted against your ratio, right? <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, dishwashers, ice machines, those count. Yeah. And those are hard. And those are hard. hard. to do. So. And public restrooms. <laughs> but it was interesting when you were saying, could it uh, handle one more uh, bar? You know, when we started the brewery back in 1987, there were already three breweries in Portland. And the reason we're in Hood River is we thought, no way. No way. <laughs> we were a little wrong about that, obviously. Right now, I think Portland has something like... Uh, 62? 62 oh breweries God. in Portland. <laughs> There's 140 in the state. One of my favorite is right in Hood River, which is a town of 5,000 people. We have eight breweries. Eight breweries. And they were all all just like you, brewers who worked for us, who started their breweries. So it, it's kind of it's an interesting <laughs> historical spread we've seen here over all these years. Wow. Dave, you, you've toured the country and visited a lot of breweries. Have you ever been out to Full Sail? No, I haven't. Or I, I, I did time? get to go to Portland uh, 10 years ago, and I uh, got to spend, uh, I forget why I was there, but I got to spend a few days there and, and uh, just really kind of toured the town more than, more than the, the brewing. And uh, but I am definitely. I think the CB the Craft Brewers Conference is out mm -hmm. in Portland, not next year. It's in Denver, but the year after that. I think I think. The year after that, yeah. yeah. So I'm planning on going out and spending a couple of weeks and just touring around. Well, Looking great. forward to it. Come yeah. out to the brewery. Yeah, we have a for pretty sure. cool location. We're right on the river, so we're on the Oregon side, but Washington is right across. The mighty Columbia. The mighty Columbia. Yeah, having just been yeah. there, Dave. Oh, That's right, Bobby was Even just there. Rained, there. I'm sorry <laughs> about that when you were there. It's, it's a stunning location. Yeah. Well, I. I this is kind of a packed room. I mean, this is an amazing show today. We've got you know new beer bars and and, and legendary beer bars, and, and you guys the two the two breweries. But tell us more about when you got started, because you know uh, we don't think too much about the '80s, 
in terms of craft beer, and, and many of us weren't working in the industry then. I was very, very young. <laughs> it was uh, a really exciting time. I mean, it really felt, for I think many of us who started our breweries back in the 80s, it was, we traveled Europe, most of us, you know, backpacking thing right after college, and you had these amazing beers. And you came back, and it was so deep about quality of life issues for us, and we really wanted to bring some of that back to the United States. And I think it's uh, such an interesting piece, and that's why I'm such a deep believer in craft, because I think overall it's just part of that trend. When you look at the whole growth of winery, cheese making, coffee, all of it, it's people who really wanted to improve these pieces that really make the quality of life for us. So uh, it was pretty exciting. Uh, Not the easiest concept to explain back then, very hard to get financing. Impossible. People were like, why? There's three perfectly good, good breweries. breweries. Why are you doing this? <laughs> you know? So I think for most of us who started very early, it was a lot of uh, bootstrapping, mm-hmm. which in itself was not a bad discipline. You know, So it was exciting, and uh, it's amazing where it is right now. What was the first... The size of the first brewery you had. Tell us a little bit about the operation. We did 287 barrels the first year, and they were very, very painful. First bottling we did took us 24 hours, and I think we did 10 cases of beer. <laughs> There's a picture of all of us exhausted over the 10 cases of beer. So, you know, we, we definitely had the learning curve. Well, uh, the licensing people from the state. Uh, we had ladies that had never licensed anybody. Yeah. You know, the last license in Oregon was the besides the three guys in Portland was Henry Weinhardt's back in the 1800s. So they didn't know, you know, like, is there a tax-paid line? It was stumbling around. I mean, really different. And then, of course, we go in for the license, and the lady says, uh, Oregon Liquor Control, what's a four-letter word for alcohol? And I said, beer? And she said, no. Wine? No. The four-letter word for alcohol is drug. That's what we're here to talk about. Ooh, and you thought, this is not going to be fun (laughs) for three hours. Craft drugs. That's why we got into it, right? Yeah. Uh, it, was really, it was really kind of funny because you, you look back on that and it was rolling as much as you could go, fast, 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 and, and really trying to keep quality up and packaging standards up and all those things that really make the difference because all of a sudden, you know, we're not giving beer to our friends anymore. Now we're putting it on the shelf at Safeway and it's, it's, you have to be on it, you know? I'm serious. But I remember the perspective of it. Sierra, that was our hero and still is, uh, had been around almost 10 years longer than us and they were doing 15,000 barrels. Yeah. And we just thought that wasn't just an unbelievable number. I don't know how you'd ever get there. I don't know. We just couldn't <laughs> visualize that, you know? And, and I think that sense of scope has really changed. So what was the first beer you, you made that really took off for you? Um... First beer we made was yeah. Gold Ale, which was uh, a cream ale, and uh, it was it was a, a very nice beer. It didn't survive into the modern times. Um, the second beer we made was Imperial Porter, oh, or, well Imperial Stout, and that's actually the beer that goes in the bourbon casks today. That same recipe, and then the third beer was Wassail, uh, which we brought today actually to try, and then uh, Amber came after that, and that was when it really kind of started taking off. What are we drinking right now? This is uh, one of my beers, the Loser, uh, which started out as a 20th anniversary beer that we brewed in conjunction with Sub Pop a- Sub Pop Records. I almost said Sub Pop Ales, um, <laughs> but we got together with them and picked a couple of recipe elements out to make this. And uh, one of the things that this beer has that's kind of notable is that this was one of the first beers that was generally made with uh, Sriracha Ace hops. We actually were the first brewery to, to use those in North America, as far as I know, because the, the Gamache family that is the only family that grows them, uh, Darren Gamache called me up and he said, we grew three plants of this Japanese variety, we're going to pelletize it, and we want you to try something with it, and we'll, we're going to send it all to you. Uh, and that's one of the great things about living close to the mm-hmm. hop-producing Absolutely. areas is we all, yeah. and I include these guys too, because the Willamette Valley and the Yakima Valleys are you know, so close to so many breweries there. We get calls from people doing um, experimental hop varieties that they want us to try out so that they can see what a beer will be like. I'm doing an event later this week with Tim and the uh, union guys uh, at, a, at Bitter and Esters. We're making a homebrew. I brought five pounds of an experimental uh, hop that's now known only as 366, and uh, nice. we'll yeah. fool around with that. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah, cool. <laughs> hey, cheers to everybody. Oh, cheers. cheers. All right. And Tim, what, what are some of the, the Full Sail and Elysian yeah. beers that, that do well here in, in New York City? Well, the, <clears throat> with uh, with Full Sail, the, the session has become 
really a, a mainstay and staple in a lot of um, on-premise and off-premise locations. Uh, session logger, um, if for the people that aren't familiar with it, is it's won countless medals at GABF, um, World Beer Cup, um, in, in a, international beer festivals all over the place. It's it's really one of the one of the uh, gems, whether it's hidden or not. For some people, it's uh, one of the best American lagers uh, on the market. It's all malt, uh, just incredibly well balanced. But they they've got some extensions on it. The the Session Black, which is uh, my go-to beer in terms of the Session series uh, and Session Fest as well. It also comes it comes out right around this time of year um, that we're currently talking. I don't know when this is going to air. Uh, <laughs> Christmas time. Uh, um, <laughs> and then the. Uh, and then the the regular full sale lineup with the IPA and the amber those are just incredibly well balanced great representations of of those particular styles so everything that full sale has to offer tends to be very consistent throughout the year but probably in New York the workhorse is the session line just dead solid great products and with Elysian um, their their strength is really the versatility of, of their entire brewing operation. Uh, so many different styles come to New York. Uh, they did an Apocalypse series a couple of years ago. Um, they uh, this past year uh, we really highlighted their uh, pumpkin their pumpkin beers. Elysian is very well known for influencing pumpkin beers all around the country. Uh, Dick is well known in the brewing community for. Um, getting uh, other brewers very drunk and committing them to making pumpkin beers. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have like you told me you have eighty recipes right now, something like that. Oh, I'm sure we do. Yeah, I mean we've made quite a few pumpkin. I mean this last year for our pumpkin ale festival that we have every year, we poured a total of I think eighty one from various breweries, but fifteen of those recipes were ours, and there were seven collaborations we'd done with other breweries. Wow! And I just I had a pepper saison too. Did this fall? Or? Oh yeah, the uh, the Oddland series. Yeah, the the peppercorn saison that we did with uh, green, black, white, and pink peppercorns. Yep, all was fooling around. And I was uh, <laughs> very excited to hear that the super fuzz is coming back. It was What's one the super of my fuzz? favorite. The super fuzz, the, the blood su- orange pale. The super fuzz, yeah, our blood orange pale ale. We've uh, yeah, that was uh, that really took off for us last year. You know, the kind of groovy psychedelic label yeah. didn't hurt, but I think it was a it was a nice balance. Uh, the, or- the blood orange is an element. There's also blood orange peel in it. Um, you know, I've actually answered some emails from people who were disappointed that it didn't taste like fruit juice, but I've gotten much many more emails from people who thought that, they, that who really enjoyed it, and that'll be back this summer. I- I've had a few beers that have made with fruit, and uh, you know, I-, I-, I don't appreciate a beer with fruit juice. You know, so there's some guys making beers like. I don't want to say the, the 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 brands, but it's like they're putting apricots in mm-hmm. apricot juice in with a beer, or it's like, you know, they they the fake lambics where there's mm-hmm. ale mixed with fruit. Right. I mean, well, I think uh, balance is what it's all mm-hmm. about. Tim was talking about how well balanced the full sale beers are, and that's very very true. Uh, and I think that's sort of the watchword. Whenever anybody asks me what the most important element of any recipe that I put together or that we put together, it's balance. Even if a beer is intense, even if it's flavorful or super hoppy, it's still got to be balanced. Yeah, and I think that whole balance thing is critical. The Germans have an expression that the first beer should call, should call for the third. And as brewers, we love that. As bar owners, you guys should too. Absolutely. And we really strive to make those beers, and that is about balance. It's about a flavor palette that keeps you intrigued, where there's not not one single note that just keeps playing, but that you keep having this interchange of flavors from malt to hops and back and forth. But you can't get that without balance. Well, and there's a you know a scientific part behind it as well, where you know you the human body is a still animal in some way, and you, know, you turn a fan on in your room at night and it makes noise, and eventually your brain shuts off the noise because it's listening for saber toothed tiger or whatever. I mean, you know, you think about <laughs> old uh, genes, and the palate works the same way. So if something's hyper bitter, the first drinks are very intense, maybe, you know, uh, very big amplitude, all that kind of stuff, but then your palate shuts those flavors down and what's left behind it. So if you have hops, you have malt, you have alcohol and balance. The palate fatigues across all flavors at the same time, and the beer remains tasting like the beer. And so that first beer calls for the third. That's brilliant. Yeah. Wow. And, Ray, uh, when, when you, you know, you've opened your shop, San Cabrinas. Yes. I mean, what are you looking for in beers now? Because there's so many choices and, and so many great brewers. Well, we've got to get people in the door. Uh, so I'm trying to keep up like a, a good list of like the 
the hot beers or good beers or something that'll that get people like, oh wow, that's I never saw that before. And then trying to keep the the shelves, we were kind of limited in space, so I'm trying to keep the, the just the good ones, um, maybe the top top tier beers there, uh, get people to come in, and then you've got to once you get them in the door, you've got to sell them. Um, you know, like uh, one of Tim's uh, uh, brands, like Main Beer Company, is like very hot right now. So we've got some of their beers on the shelves, and people like grab that and like, oh well, if you like that, you know, maybe you can try uh, this one down here. Um, you know, we're just trying to keep keep things like I said, like they, everybody said, balanced. But uh, you know, keep keep it up. Awesome. Hey, we're gonna have to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. We got such great guests here on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This one's called Target Practice by Hard Bodies on the Heritage Radio Network dot org. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio. we got a full room. Dave Broderick, Blind Tiger. Everybody say their name and, and say where you're from, because this is too much fun. Dave Broderick, Blind Tiger. Tim Stendhal, Union Beer Distributors. Ray Darmstadt, St. Gambrina's Beer Shop. It, Dick Cantwell from Elysian Brewing in South Seattle. Jamie Emerson, Full Sail Brewery. Irene Fermat, Full Sail. Bob on the gate in Parksville, Brooklyn. All right, and Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43. Well, we're, we're drinking. We've moved on from uh, the Elysian Loser. We had Sierra Nevada Celebration, and now we're drinking uh, something from Full Sail. Cheers. Cheers. What is it, Irene? Wassail. Uh, Wassail is uh, something that we did back in 1988, and we were trying to recreate a tradition that I think a lot of craft brewers uh, really loved, which was an old-school tradition of how, you, how do you thank your customers at the end of the year? for being your customers, and it was to brew a really special beer that had just a bit more of everything. And so Wassail is our winter beer, and so it has a bit more of malt and hops and alcohol and all of those good things. And uh, it really, like so many things about craft beer, I think it really brings back pieces that uh, just make the whole beer uh, world that much richer that much deeper you know uh as a woman i've never been very fond of the bikini babes way of selling beer and that's one of the things i love about craft beer that we talk respectfully to our customers about uh culture and heritage and uh just the camaraderie and the joy of drinking beer was there was there ever a time when i'm sorry was there ever a time when you guys thought that this wasn't going to work and, and you were going to get out of it? I mean, you've been doing this over 20 years. All, all the time. 26. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 26. And yeah, I, I think you can't be in a business like this that evolves and changes so quickly and have any sense of status quo. You know, I think it's uh, pretty humbling all the time. And I think it is really always a challenge to say, what, who are we deeply and where are we just going to be the way we are, regardless of what's hot at the moment. And that's always a challenge, I think. And for us, we believe in very classic, balanced beer styles. So when the world is really about IBU, uh, you know, arms race, that's not really what we make. And so we're willing to write it out just to stay really true to our vision of what we believe are the beers that make sense. You know, I was reading about your brewery and also Dick early was talking about Elysian. I know you guys are in the heart of hop country and everything, Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Um, do you buy most of your ingredients from uh, local farms? Yeah, 99.9 or 99.8. It's all local within basically 100 miles of the brewery. Malt House is in uh, Vancouver, Washington. Uh, barley is grown in uh, eastern Oregon, eastern Washington, Idaho, and Montana. Uh, the hops were right between the two hop fields, basically, on the drive between the valley and Yakima. So we had a lot of hop growers between, and you know, they'll drop off packs of whatever. It's like, oh, check this out. They're goodies, yeah. And, um, you know, we, uh, 
we had a just a side story. We had some hops that showed up from one of the growers, and they smelled like candied pineapples. They were wonderful. Wow. So we brewed a pail up with it, dry hopped it, and had everybody come in, put it on cask. So we tweeted it and posted it and like that. And you poured it out, and it smelled like a sweaty 16-year-old boy. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we learned before we uh, do a lot of social networking and bring you people on in, we better taste it first. Yeah. I have actually brewed before with this hop that I'm brewing with on Thursday, so it doesn't smell <laughs> yeah. like that. But I'm, I, I'm very familiar with that disappointment. Right. You, know, something yeah, that you rub it between your hands, and it's just oh. ethereal and transcendent and wonderful, and then you brew with it, and it's not quite as wonderful. wonderful. Yeah, yeah cooking, cooking changes things. Well, but I, the res- think, sorry, sorry, the the reverse can be true as well. Yes, you know, yeah. something can be very quiet, very subtle uh, when you brew with it, and then you and and then when you first smell it, and then you brew with it, and it just opens up and becomes something that you know that a lot of people are going to want to taste and brew with. Well, and I think the hop farmers too are really cool part of the whole craft beer story, because if you go and look at so many of these farms, there are three, four generation family farms, and um, when you look at when they started really reinvesting in all their uh, harvesting equipment and all. It was in the 90s and early 2000s. And that really is a wonderful uh, piece of craft beer that our relationships with our farmers have helped them to thrive. Yeah, if there's one good thing to be said about the hop crisis of about five years ago when we all, you know, suddenly were, you know, there was a rude awakening, hops, uh, nearly everything went wrong that could have gone wrong with the hop market and the growing season and everything else. Uh is it brought about much greater uh, communication between brewers and farmers. Uh, and so now I think we, you know, I, we, I see pe- farmers coming through my place. I'm sure these guys do too all the time, just coming over to Seattle, check things out, bring things over. Uh, far more brewers than ever before go to Yakima and I'm sure to the Willamette Valley as well for hop selection to t- test out the different uh, lots of each different variety and pick the lots that they want to really help forge um, another sort of pieces, more pieces of their identity and the flavors that they brew with. It's been it's been very very exciting. And now there's a there's a brewery, the Smith family, who have uh, Loftus Farms, have started a brewery literally in the middle of the hop fields there called Balebreaker, and it's terrific. Their beers are wonderful, uh, and you know so it's it's really going full circle in many different ways. Well, the other part of the full circle is the German hop growers. We have the. Uh... We had Tetanang hop growers out at the brewery about six weeks ago before harvest because harvest in Germany was going to be late. So we had the uh, the group from Tetanang out, and they were coming between the two fields. And they were in the brewery, and, and we were making these classic styles, but basically with Northwest ingredients. And so they were actually worried that noble hops were becoming passe, that uh, you know German hops were being ignored. And so they had planted 10 hectares of cascades in the Tetnang to grow North American hops in Germany, which would probably be really kind of cool. Sure, you know, you think yeah. the terroir or whatever would be really interesting. But, you know, they were worried that people are, would pass them by. And it's like, well, they're still wonderful hops. I mean, uh, they're just not like some of the crazy hops in the States, that's all. But I love that circular thing of all of a sudden the German hop growers are copying the American hop growers, right, we, that our yeah, farmers are taking the lead We there. see that kind of tennis match with styles, too. Mm-hmm. You know, the way uh, IPAs are taken on by Belgians who brew IPAs with Belgian yeast who send it back to us, and then we brew our own version of a Belgian-style IPA with American hops or maybe with some other hops. It goes back and forth. I mean, you almost don't know what style belongs to whom anymore. And for those of us who pay attention, well, we kind of know that, but that's one of the things, one of the trivia games that's really fun to play among all of our efforts. I think that's why we like beer so much. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the old old traditions are, are trying new ingredients, mm-hmm. and, and you guys are picking up old traditions, and that's what kind of keeps it fresh. I mean, Dave, you, you're up in Vermont now. You've got Worthy Burger, Worthy, Worthy Kitchen, and you're exposed to a lot of beer, more than more than most of us, I think, because you're in New York and Vermont, and you've been around the country. I don't know. What do you think about all this stuff? Yeah, no, I think it's um, it's interesting, you know, after being in New York for twenty over 20 years and then moving to a small town in Vermont, it's, you know, extremely different. Um, and, when you know, when I first got to Vermont, there, you know, there was Long Trail and, and Otter Creek, and and, um, and I guess Harpoon had, had, had bought the Windsor plant. So there was, you know, three big breweries. Catamount. But not much, oh, yeah. and Catamount was, mm-hmm. but Catamount was already gone by the time we got up gone. there, yeah. Yeah. and so, 
to see the change now it's all about small brewers in vermont and uh much more connected with the land and and uh really trying to you know follow that they do farmstead breweries that's that's a big thing up there now so it's just uh and it's very localized you know they they really want to drink product from vermont and so you know that's just a big change uh for up there and for me you know coming from new york from a very international uh place where all the you know it seems like all the beers sort of congregate in new york at some point in time you get to try a lot of different things so up there i don't you know i really kind of have to drink what's up there so it's very different could uh, be worse could be a lot worse i'm not complaining a, i got a twitter question that came in so we're gonna ask everybody everyone in the room can, can answer that so it's from at 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 good beer seal our friends um they wanted to know, ask each of you uh what beer you would like to brew for christmas style or is there a favorite christmas style beer that that you would like to serve or purchase. Anybody can go first if they want to. Well, um, we have done a lot of different Christmas beers over the year. Our years, our sort of flagship Christmas beer that that we actually put into package is called Bifrost. It's a strong. Once again, it's a strong pale ale that finishes with Slovenian Styrian Goldings. Um, and I guess that was sort of my little sort of uh, rebellion against the spiced Christmas beer. Uh, which for a while was kind of de rigueur, as you know, homebrewers and everybody uh, would come out with a something special. And I like those too, uh, but I didn't think that really had the commercial legs that something different would be, would have. Uh, but uh, the seasonal IPA that we have out right now, Valhalla, began as a Christmas IPA, which t- took a, certainly took some influence from the Sierra Nevada Celebration Ale that we started with, which really, if I had to pick a Desert Island beer, that might be it, the Celebration. Uh, but I also do um, uh, a chestnut brown ale. Uh, with chestnuts, I felt felt like that was kind of seasonal. That sounds good. We've done, we have done other spice things. We've done uh, a Belgian Christmas beer, what we've called a Belgian Christmas beer, a strong, uh, sort of even extra strong double ale. Uh, our Belgian triple is called Bet Blanche. That one we call Bet Noel. So I like to uh, come out with at least a half a dozen different Christmas beers every year if we can. New ones all the time. Uh, for me, it's uh, uh, I spent a lot of time in Munich my last year of university, and uh, Germans the whole lager piece always has been one of my big uh, pieces that captures my imagination. Uh, you go to Munich and they have Weinox Fest beer, which is a a really lovely pale bock, and uh, that influenced the LTD four, which is coming out here post Christmas. But uh, we have. Wassail, which we're drinking today, which is a strong ale. Uh, the lovely uh, old kind of English style. Uh, the recipe for Wassail doesn't change every year. It's only the hops that shift. So the ones that we find that are the best of the year go into Wassail. So this year is Northern Brewers and Brewers Golds. Uh, just a really nice lineup. Then uh, Session Fest, which Tim mentioned earlier. It's a Czech lager beer, uh, Polo Tamava, which means semi-dark. And uh, 6-2 alcohol. Uh, really nice caramel flavors, um, creamy in a way, I think is one of the big things there. Uh, very smooth. And uh, we have Wreck the Halls. Yeah, well, yeah. LTD Black Bach. That's the LTD series. That's a Czech style called Serenade, and that's a 7% uh, Doppelbach, but has notes of roast, which you don't really typically find in, say, a German style. And. Uh, uh, just a, a, a lovely variety of beers for the celebrating the season that uh, I think go with colder weather really well and uh, help uh, soften the blows of uh, visiting relatives. <laughs> That's kind of our criteria there. That's why they have all a little more alcohol. My personal favorite is Wasdale because when Jamie brewed that back in 1988, it was so out there. You know, we were in the middle of uh, fruit wheat beers believe it or not, you know, back in the 80s, it was already, ha- some of that was there. And I just let it go. You know, it was kind of like, okay, let the brewer be creative. Let's see how this happens. I didn't think we were going to sell any, and I was wrong. And I think actually that did wonderful things for our relationship, because not long after that, we got engaged and been married for 24 <laughs> years. So <laughs> Wassail's a personal favorite there. Let the brewer do his stuff. Yeah. Now, Irene hired me, and uh, I married the boss. Uh, we, had, we had some British visitors the other day, and, and we were telling that story, and they did the uh, the finger, you know, the, 
the shame on Irene. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Broke some uh, human resource rules there, but, you know, there were only four of us, so it There's didn't matter, yeah. So it all worked out, yeah. He, he probably works harder now, too, then. It was a really good personnel move, yeah, I would say. <laughs> Smarter than I look, okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right, and Bob, let's do it quick. So, Bobby, a favorite Christmas beer? Uh, a couple of them. Desert Island beers are so difficult to pick, and usually I spend um, this time of year trying to sort of get a hit out of everything, you know, and try to find everything. But my first, the first two Christmas beers I ever had are still mainstays for me, and that's Anchor Christmas mm-hmm. and Sierra Celebration. Mm-hmm. One of the seek-and-find beers for me always every Christmas is the Sam Smith's Winter Welcome, mm-hmm. which I absolutely love. It's just got that subtle, mm-hmm. you know, that subtlety, that, that non-arms race, hop, hops right. arms race, yeah. and just a, a must-go-to winter beer. All right, Ray from mm-hmm. uh, St. Gambrinus Beer Shop. Uh, it's easy for me. I would just make an imperial Sierra, Sierra Nevada celebration. <laughs> right. And Tim, I know you got a whole lineup, but pick one. Yeah. You oh, have man. way too I, many. I think you've got I, a list of 50 Christmas beers I'm supposed to buy. I, I mean, there there are a ton. I mean, from, from imports to domestics. Um, but I, I like to bring um, stuff to my to my family get-togethers when we when we have uh, holiday holiday events. And honestly, an unfiltered Pilsner. For for me is the way to go because that that appeals to everybody in my family the the hop heads because pilsners tend to be a little bit hoppier unfiltered because it gives it a really nice check texture and depth um, and it finishes super clean unfiltered pilsners are the way to go. All right, and Dave, um, this Christmas I'm going to be bringing a uh, actually a cider that I made. I've got these 200 year old trees. My my uh, farmhouse was a tavern back in the 1780s and. And they planted all these trees. They couldn't make beer, so they, they planted all these uh, old trees, and I'm still harvesting them, and I kind of brought them back. And, and so I do an old Vermont style, which is yad raisins and, and molasses, which jacks up the alcohol a little bit and uh, makes it a little more complex and very, very Christmassy. I think that's why I like that. I think I've had your cider before. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, we're going to raise our glasses. Uh, this might be our Christmas show, even though this is a 11 o'clock in the morning in, in November. And we're taking advantage of these great brewers uh, from the Pacific Northwest visiting New York for our great brewers uh, portfolio tasting. So I'd like to thank our sponsors again at greatbrewers.com. have helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. And we're supported by the Good Beer Seal, Blind Tiger, The Gate, and Jimmy's Number 43 are all members of the Good Beer Seal. You can follow us on Twitter at beer underscore sessions. All right, thanks to Dave, Bobby, Ray, Irene, Jamie, Dick, and uh, everyone else for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers, uh, Jack Inslee, Brie O'Connor, and Maggie Seiden, and Justin Kennedy, and our engineer, Joe Galarraga. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.